0: You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Rejoining us on the podcast for the second time, one of my favorite guests, Gary Golden, is back. If you missed our first episode with Gary about cryptocurrency and ADA and Cardano, Uh, go back and listen. Uh, It's a very, very good episode. It was episode 30. Um, Gary joined us today, however, not to talk about crypto, but to talk about renewable energy and specifically why he is very bullish on hydrogen. Uh, A little bit about Gary. He's an academically trained futurist who's been providing insights to clients on industry trends for a long time. If you happen to live in the New York City area and you have kids, you should also check out intothefuture.nyc, which is Uh, One of Gary's cool new projects where he's actually taking some of these insights and helping teach and and raise a new generation thinking towards the future rather than inheriting what we have from the past. It's really awesome and you should check it out. So thanks, Gary, for making the time. Uh, Listeners, hope you enjoyed last week's episode and that you enjoy this one. I feel like we've got some really good content heading in to the end of the year. As always check us out at perchperspectives.com if you want to learn about the services that we provide to both investors and to corporate clients you can also find more information there about our free newsletter or our latin america geopolitics themed newsletter called latam politic you can also write to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you want to chat or tell us how you enjoyed the podcast or have topics you want to suggest Last but not least, we recorded this on Tuesday, November 30th on a beautiful morning here in New Orleans. This will come out in about two weeks. Okay. Enough of me talking. Let's get to Gary. Cheers, y'all. All right, Gary. Welcome back to the show. It's nice to see you, man. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. The audience can't see you, but I can see you and yeah. that's that's <laughs> all that really counts. Um, Look, so we talked about crypto last time. Now we're going to talk about uh, energy and renewables and all sorts of fun things. and. Um, I wanted to start with a sort of higher level question or thought or feeling and and sort of sit on the couch and have you (laughs) have you respond to it. Um, I'm always equal parts sort of depressed and amazed when I start thinking about renewable energy. And I'm amazed because the level of technological change that is happening is absolutely incredible. I mean, the things that people are doing um, and what the world could like in 20 years, it seems like the kind of world I would love to live in and have my children live in, etc. Um, but then when you actually sort of dig into the nitty gritty of where we are on progress, getting there, it's really bad. Um, you know, Just a couple of stats from the IEA to give listeners a flavor. Um, you know, If we're going to hit 2050 net zero targets, we need to uh, basically install the world's largest solar park every day from now to 2050, which doesn't seem like that's going to happen. We need to increase nuclear power production by 80%. Um, even with all the investments in hydrogen um, today, we're talking about 90 gigawatts by 2050. IEA says we need 850 gigawatts by 2050. Um, so I find myself depressed and amazed at the same time. W- which should I be? Are you depressed? Are you amazed? Is it both? Help, us, help, help me work through that
1: emotion. Uh, I would say I'm both. Um, I, I have a much more long-term perspective on everything. I I It's not even the 2050 targets. It really is kind of end of century for me mm. when I think about where we need to be versus want to be and a realistic expectation of how long it's going to take to get there. As we not only shift energy technologies, but global energy relationships and power structures, um, it's not simply just replacing an energy uh, technology or input. It's, it's really thinking about the, the new order of energy geopolitics. So for me, if I kind of couple those things together and embrace a long game, uh, it's uh, generally positive for me. We're we're in a much better place now than I think we were in 2015 and 2010. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, and I also, quite frankly, I I, I don't think we are going to meet the GHG reduction targets. We're not. So... We, we we may have to have more serious conversations about adaptation and you know other mitigation strategies because I don't think we will reach those targets by mid century I think it's an end of the century play are are we going to be
0: around by the end of the century if we keep up
1: yeah that? i yeah. think so <laughs> <laughs> you know i uh the, you know the the what will happen in the future, in terms of the physical world, in terms of uh, ocean temperatures and acidification, and uh, the thermohaline cycle that keeps Europe warm, all that we just cannot know what is going to happen with these large-scale systems. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I really just kind of hope for the best in terms of the worst of of the climate change predictions. Um, I don't think that the like. The rising ocean flooding scenario is the worst of it. I think it's the, you know, the arid central farming areas, mm. you know, it, it's the shift of the, of the rain patterns for me that's the worst case scenario. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not overly optimistic that we will reach the targets. So I am always entertaining conversations about uh, what will we do if we don't.
0: Yeah, I mean the the targets seem completely aspirational at this point. Maybe maybe they're trying to drive political or economic investment and things like that. But yeah. when you actually look at the numbers, I mean, unless something really crazy happens here, I, I don't. They don't look like realistic targets to me at all. Um, but let's not dwell too much on that. Let's let's try <laughs> and dive into some of the interesting stuff. Yeah. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, I wanted to sort of ask you to give a an overview of where you think renewables are today and where you see them. 10 years from now. Um, maybe that's not the right question because you're thinking at a hundred year timescale. So why don't you just sort of give us a picture of where we're at today and pick a timeline that sort of helps us think about where, where we're going to be at least in the
1: lifetime of the listeners. Sure. So, well, I mean, a 10 year horizon is, is, is great for a conversation. Um, so where are we with renewables? Uh, the, the, the policies that, uh, Guide market transitions have worked, and that we have seen a massive reduction in the costs of things like solar and wind mm-hmm. to the level where I think you know, virtually you know, the overwhelming majority of new capacity coming online is from uh, solar and wind right? in, in certain regions of the world. So it's kind of like check the box where we did it. The policy worked and, and, and enabled these economies of scale. And what we're starting to see particular with, with solar is uh, more investments outside of China. So what's, what's been revealed over the last 10 years is, yes, solar is working, but it's fully dependent on basically a single source provider. So we're starting to see, you know, India and, and even European countries start to say, all right, let's start to onshore some of this supply chain. So that's positive. And all of the costs have been reduced to allow them to do that. Uh, within the uh, wind industry, we're starting to see movement towards offshore. So really the, the kind of the least politically uh, troubling wind projects are, are <clears throat> offshore. They're deep ocean where there's steady wind and uh, there's, there's always some environmental impact, but it's, it's not as bad as the onshore uh, land-based systems. So both of those are just running full steam ahead. And, and what, what I expect to happen uh, in the next decade is uh, a new lens on how do we grow renewables, where it is not simply solar and wind to decarbonize the power grid, right? Using you know direct feed into the power grid or battery to help balance the, the variability and the load. Into a decade where solar and wind are going to be converted directly into hydrogen. And we're going to begin to decarbonize uh, sectors beyond the power grid. So this notion of renewables into grid battery versus renewables into hydrogen is the big mental shift of the next decade. And my thesis and you know <clears throat> the listeners don't know, but you do I am 100 percent bullish on hydrogen, <laughs> right? was wrong about it for 20 years and early about it for 20 years. And I'm no longer early. (laughs) It's, it's booming. It's the number one story, but there's a mental shift that has to be required, right? People have to realize I don't need to have solar and wind just generate electricity. I don't need that solution to get me to the finish line. I can convert that energy into clean molecules and do a lot more, (laughs) uh, with those sources.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot. to So, <laughs> un-
1: no, there- <laughs> yeah. And we don't have to go directly into the hydrogen. We can, you know, we can kind of p- unpack the, you know, the China, uh, you know, story as well. Oh,
0: screw that. I, I want to go straight to the hydrogen. But, oh, okay. But, but, before, <laughs> but before, but before we get there, um, just one thing before we get there, because I mean, so you talked about wind and solar and they've done really well, but even in the US, the, you know, the mix of sources where we get energy from, we're talking, I think the, the latest EIA estimates were 8% from wind, 2% yeah. from solar. It's still yep. 20% from coal. So there's a lot of opportunity cost there. But before we dive into, because I feel like hydrogen and fossil fuels, all that's in the same family. I did want to just pick your brain for a second about nuclear and where you yeah. think it comes in with renewables. Um, because I was surprised to read lately that most of the nuclear plants in, the, in, in Europe and the United States are like 30 years old, they're past yeah. their life expectancy. We haven't been building any in part because there was this mental shift that nuclear was unsafe. Um, yep. most of the new nuclear plants are going up in places like India, like China, which is fooling around with thorium, which sounds like a really cool technology as well. So where is nuclear on your on your dartboard? Is it there? Or are you not as excited about it?
1: So well, the full disclosure is I my father worked at a utility, he was a welder at a nuclear power plant. Hmm. So I, I grew up where the nuclear power plant brought food, put food on the table. Uh, I've always had a overall net positive uh, view of nuclear energy. I've always been sympathetic to the pro-nuclear side of the energy decarbonization story. And, uh, And at the same time, I find the case for nuclear to be stalled And no sign of any hope on the horizon outside of the occasional, you know, Bill Gates to invest in a, you know, small modular reactor. Uh, I think the UK is putting in a bunch of money for a small nuclear, like, yeah, small modular nuclear reactors should have a future. Um, But I see, I don't see the stakeholder push or the policy regulatory Guardrails in place for it to thrive, I wish it would, but I just don 't see evidence of it
0: well that's really so why do you think uh, this is probably more of a psychological question, but why is that
1: it it may be a hesitancy for influencers of policy within the energy world to step into what is a largely a, a myth uh, an unfortunately uh, framed Nuclear is unsafe reality. It, it really is a. It may just be a kind of a third rail type category. Hmm. It is safe. It is clean. It does scale. Many countries can do it. Many can countries can do it safely, and it should be a global, uh, globally coordinated effort. Um, why not? It, it, it may just be because of perception. Yep. well, that's yeah. depressing. It's, very, it's, it's, it's sad. It's very depressing. I, it's very
0: depressing. I want to be slightly cynical and ask: Is is part of the reason that a lot of these, especially these these companies that are involved in natural gas, see an opportunity with hydrogen that they don't see with nuclear because they think they can retrofit their pipelines to to sort of get on the hydrogen bandwagon, and therefore, oh, absolutely, helping push yeah,
1: them. yeah. I mean, they're a molecules business. You know, nuclear is uh, it. it, it one of the challenges with the nuclear industry is that it's an island unto itself, right? It's a, you know, natural gas, oil, you know, you could lean into biofuels, you can lean into hydrogen, you you can lean into new things. Nuclear is just kinda, you just do nuclear. (laughs) I don't do anything else. Um, There are, you know, again, just to open up this door uh, of what's happening, the nuclear uh, to hydrogen coupling, is very compelling to the nuclear industry because the nuclear industry right now has their hands tied because they need to uh, be a solution that can balance out variable solar and wind renewables. And nuclear doesn't do that particularly well. It's not a quick, it's not a peaker plant. It's not up, down, you know, ramp up, ramp down type technology. If I have a nuclear power plant, they can produce a massive amount of electricity. Why not just... Convert it into hydrogen and deal with a completely different market um, that doesn't, you know, care about up. I just run the nuclear power plant full load, full capacity all the time. So I don't know. I think nuclear is too isolated as a technology, it doesn't have enough couplings and pairings and, and analogs to really give it the support it needs. But But it is a travesty for humanity if, if climate change and the worst case scenarios happen, I think in a hundred years we'll look back and, be, and just question like what were people thinking <laughs> in terms well, of the risk profile
0: <laughs> Well, yeah, and all, I mean I, I can only imagine how the scientists who helped you know discover um, nuclear fission would feel today because they thought they were zeroing in on a, on a universal energy source for human beings and instead we made a bunch of weapons out of it and then sort of left it at that um i imagine they're all rolling over in their graves right now yeah um all right well it's good with a lot of optimism and hope here coming from the early section of the podcast let's (laughs) let's start to dip into the hydrogen conversation i feel like the the way to get into that conversation though is we have to talk about something you've alluded to which is the difference between electrification and decarbonization and as you were talking about you know the mental shift from renewables and batteries to renewable and hydrogen, I think even the, the emphasis on decarbonization as opposed to electrification yeah. is probably yeah. a mental jump most people seem to yeah. need to make. I, I think the best example of this is that you know, Elon Musk is the biggest celebrity in the financial world right now because he made electric cars, which doesn't really matter if you make electric cars if you're still generating electricity from fossil fuels all over, all over the country and all over the world. So. Give us a little bit about the, yeah. the difference between electrification yeah. and decarbonization.
1: Sure. So it's, it's, it's uh, these are two policy approaches. Um, first, let's all recognize that for the most part, electricity drives the future. It drives all economic activity. The things that we use, computers, electric motors, it's electricity that powers the world. Mm-hmm. The question is what, it, and there's no doubt the electricity is the future. The question is, what is the appropriate and desirable role of molecules in supporting electricity, right? So an electrification, electrify everything approach, which I would argue is the dominant narrative in the activist side of energy policy, uh, basically says electrify everything, electrify heat, electrify transportation, electrify the power grid, get rid of molecules, Scale of the batteries, it's just, it's just circuits and, you know, electricity the whole way, all the way up and down. And, uh, and let's just, we'll just define it at that. Decarbonization says we will try to electrify as much as reasonable and economically viable. And where we can't, we will use clean molecules, which could be hydrogen, ammonia, biofuels, renewable gas, whatever it is, it's a molecule fuel that has tremendous thermal properties, it's got great storage properties, it, you know, lots of advantages and we will decarbonize the economy without electrifying everything. So we can have clean heat, we can have electric vehicles powered by molecule fuels. We can decarbonize steel uh, manufacturing. We can decarbonize cement and ammonia uh, fertilizer production, not through electrification, but through the use of clean molecules. So I am in the camp of decarbonization. I, I think that electrification of everything is a, is a fantasy wrapped in an illusion. <laughs> it's, it's not possible. It's not desirable. Uh, it would be the slowest, most expensive path to reaching our climate change targets. And some of the smartest people in the world in energy activism will completely disagree with me. (laughs) But um, the industry consensus is clearly moving towards decarbonization and a more outweighed role for clean molecules. Um, Electrification is, 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 I think, peaking as a policy guideline.
0: Well, if so, if that person was here to tell you that you were wrong, what, what would their counter argument be to you that electrification is really the path forward?
1: There is, well, they'll they'll, they'll probably have a conspiracy theory piece that a decar- uh, electrification is the quickest way to kill the oil companies and the coal companies and kind of the power dynamic. And they make an argument that electrification is like the, you know, uh, you know, it's kind of like the, it's the most democratized strategy. And, uh, and there, there's always that piece in an anti big oil, big coal, they will argue that uh, electricity is more efficient, which it is, but efficiency uh, is not the only metric, you need to have scale, you need to have interoperability. Um, and, uh, and then cost, they'll argue that electricity is cheaper, um, and when they talk about that, they're always talking about, you know, a very limited definition of where it is cheaper relative to the real world reality, right? Like to to elect use electricity to to heat your home in New England is four times as expensive as natural gas, right? So, yeah. but in California, electric heat, which we don't use a lot, is is more viable.
0: Yeah. Well, and then so, I think to muddy the waters even more, so within decarbonization, and if you 're a self appointed you know decarbonization acolyte um, so and we can sort of maybe dive into hydrogen right here. You know, not yeah. all hydrogen is generated equal, some hydrogen is generated via fossil fuels, and then some hydrogen is generated via renewables itself. so is there space for both blue and green hydrogen in your decarbonization universe, or when you say that you're um supportive of decarbonization are you really saying we need to get to the green hydrogen phase it's nice to have blue on the path there but we're talking about really reconceptualizing how energy works and we're talking about using things like solar and wind to create hydrogen that will power things which is which is that i think a fundamental shift probably
1: yeah so i am a um, a yes and both are necessary (laughs) So exactly. for for the for the listeners, you know, uh let's say there there's this color spectrum of hydrogen you've got uh gray hydrogen which is uh let's say hydrogen captured from natural gas and the CO2 is emitted. There is blue hydrogen which is hydrogen captured from natural gas, which is methane, it's mostly hydrogen and we we sequester the carbon. So there's, you know, there's uh CO2 from emissions and you know, getting the natural gas, but it's largely greener. And then there's green hydrogen, which comes from CO2 free inputs, nuclear, solar, wind, hydroelectric, geothermal, et cetera. There's really kind of big, big picture, zero CO2 emitted in green hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, we are going to want green hydrogen as the end game. And every... Every ounce of evidence that we see across the globe shows that the policy frameworks being put in place in Europe, in Asia, in Australia, in South America, are all green hydrogen friendly. And the expectation, just like solar and wind, is that you will need policy supports, subsidies to enable green hydrogen production for probably 10 years before it is cost competitive with blue hydrogen. I think we're going to get there in some regions before 2025. I think there will be many regions that have basically, it's like a dollar or a dollar fifty per kilogram is what you're looking for
2: mm-hmm.
1: by 2025. I think the cost reductions on green hydrogen are going to happen much faster than anyone is anticipating, just like solar declined faster than anyone forecasted, and that the whole debate of blue hydrogen versus green hydrogen will fade away. At the same time, why would we not want to take our natural gas, sequester the carbon, and use the hydrogen? Mm-hmm. Why would we want to ignore <laughs> reality, which says that we need to have massive reduction in CO2 output, and natural gas end use is one of those places. So uh I am a hundred percent in support of blue hydrogen. Absolutely. And I don't care about the, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the emissions and the flaring solve those problems, solve those problems, regulate them, put a bunch of sensors out there, find the people that have those rogue emissions, you know, I'm not going to let that argument, um, deflect what is critical in helping the natural gas industry shift entirely into hydrogen within 20 years, which I think is inevitable. It's inevitable that the natural gas sector becomes pure play hydrogen, I would argue, within 20 years. There'll be remnants of natural gas infrastructure and markets hmm. um, at 20 years. LNG, all that stuff, they'll kind of begin to fade. There might be some long-term contracts through 2050 from you know, Qatar, like very large producers of LNG. But um, I think the natural gas industry becomes the hydrogen industry very quickly. So invite them in through blue hydrogen. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, there's like two sort of eye popping or ear popping things to hear there, which is the, you're saying that you think that the price of hydrogen is going to go down faster than most people are expecting. And oh yeah i think that's true i mean it's i think it's four to six times more expensive right now to do green hydrogen and i think the iea and its projections it's hoping in 10 to 15 years to bring that down but you also alluded to you know the regions where this is feasible and it seems like europe is really the one pioneering green hydrogen yeah Um, i think something like 40 percent of the capacity for sort of electrolysis that is important to making green hydrogen is in europe right now and they seem to actually have the policy framework in place for doing this You've yep. got a new German government that yep. came out really, really strong hydrogen in its most recent platform and is talking about applying that throughout Europe and wants to get rid of Russia. So do you see Europe as the main place where green hydrogen is going to take off? Or do you feel like maybe they're in the lead now, but we're going to see China and the US and some of these other regions overtake them once they get their policy acts together?
1: Yeah, we're, we're it's it, again, it's a yes end. Um, you, we've got Australia, Chile, Brazil... No. What happens if America really puts its weight behind it? So the way to, to conceptualize hydrogen is as the emerging global energy commodity. That position was, is still held by oil. It, it is the global energy commodity. Some variations of what it is and what you got to do with it based on where it was sourced. But for the most part, you buy oil from different places. Natural gas has that dynamic. Hydrogen is a global energy commodity. It will be produced in regions that have large capacity for renewable, you know, solar and wind directly into hydrogen, no grid costs, directly into hydrogen. You'll see it in hydroelectric places like Quebec, you'll see it in, you know, rivers in river systems in Brazil. You are going to see people exporting hydrogen and buying hydrogen for domestic use as in global energy commodity. So that's the big story, not who's going to be producing it the most, but who's going to be trading it. So let's unpack this. So Europe is absolutely the leader in terms of policy and targets, um, mostly led by uh, Germany, the Netherlands, UK, France, Poland, uh, Poland and the EU.
0: Yes, bones in the... Yeah, yeah. For um, now, they're... They're, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're flirting. You heard it here. Br- breaking news. <laughs> so, um, and they want to tap offshore wind. They look to the North Sea and they're like, well, look, we've been producing North sh- or no- North Sea wind, pulling that into the grid for years and we can't balance it. We're taking that energy and we're looping it through Poland because we can't deal with it on our grid. We're going to convert that... Electrical energy of the North Sea into hydrogen, and we're going to ship that energy all across Germany and Poland and et cetera. Scotland, offshore wind and hydrogen. Ireland, offshore wind and hydrogen. France, nuclear and hydrogen. Like everyone has their own solution. Um, And despite all of that uh, intended production, gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity, gigawatts, they are importing hydrogen in the future. Germany last spring put out this grand call to the world saying, we will buy your green energy. And Quebec said, we'll sell it to you. We've got a lot of hydro capacity. And Brazil said, we'll sell it to you. And just last week, uh, uh, the uh, uh, CINOM, the um, uh, Italian natural gas provider announced plans to build a hydrogen pipeline from North Africa. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mauritania uh, has a $10 billion solar wind to hydrogen project, West Africa, that will sell Europe. Namibia's total GDP is $9 billion a year. Namibia has a $10 billion green hydrogen solar to wind plant that they're going to be building to sell to Europe. So we are, it is literally exploding. And, and I feel like I'm a, a TV salesperson who's like, I've got more. Australia and Chile are the number one and number two lithium reserve nations on earth. Mm-hmm. Chile and Australia have the top two supplies of lithium. If you go online, the only news you hear coming out of Australia and Chile is green hydrogen exports. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why is that? If I have lithium and I sell it to you, it's gone. I no longer have, I've got to get more out. If I have solar and wind capacity and I sell you green hydrogen, I just keep selling it to you. It's not mineral extraction, right? Chile has, I think, $13 billion in uh, tender for projects for the Atacama Desert. Uh, And Australia is going to be putting in, I, I would argue, tens of billions of dollars to become the green hydrogen export for Asia. Um, the Elon Musk of Australia is the, the chairman of, of Fortescue, uh, which is a big old iron ore company. And he is basically the global champion right now for green hydrogen. Um, and uh, Fortescue wants to become you know, the, the, the biggest player in green hydrogen. And they're doing it in Australia. They're partnering with Brazil. It's game on. And anyone that denies the future of hydrogen because of its inefficiency or like energy loss you get in converting the hydrogen is uh, they're just not they're just not seeing reality because the reality is the the embedded hydrocarbon players of the world including the middle east are are all sending clear signals that hydrogen is their foundation for the future oman saudi arabia the uae they're all making billions of dollars in investments in hydrogen and well, we're just and, at the beginning.
0: And Russia as well. I feel like geopolitically, everybody's talking about Nord Stream too. The bigger story is that you know, Russian energy ministers are saying, we're going hydrogen in the next 10 to 15 years. We'll see you later on the, the natural gas stuff.
1: Yeah. So why? It is because hydrogen is a molecule fuel. I can use it to power an electric car. I can use it to power a steel factory. I can use it to create ammonia, which I can use for fertilizer. I can use the ammonia as an LNG competitor for long distance storage and shipping. I can decarbonize aviation. I can decarbonize rail. I can decarbonize marine shipping. I can, uh, electricity cannot do these things. Yeah. It just can't.
0: Yeah. It's uh a, it's funny you the italian project you were mentioning i read the quotes from um from one of the officials there or maybe it was a politician i forget who it was but they were talking about they were comparing it to like roman streets like once we build this (laughs) thing that connects us to the sahara we will be like the new rome i love the italian penchant for exaggeration um there's also that recent story about chile building you know a massive submarine cable to china to export solar energy there so i think that's exactly to your point but i think the real um uh, and you sort of alluded to it when you brought in lithium, but the real dagger that you're, you're pointing at the heart of a lot of geopolitical armchair analysis that, that's out there right now is one of the big concerns is, well, what, a, what about where are we going to get our cobalt and where are we going to get our lithium and where are we going to get our nickel and where are we going to get our rare earth elements and all these supply chains need to change because batteries are the future. And if we don't have these elements, then we're kind of screwed. So um, is what you're, I guess the 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 technical question would be What does the supply chain look like for hydrogen is it simpler yeah. do you need some of these input elements are there sort of hidden costs or hidden materials in the hydrogen industry that make it less attractive yeah. there or is it really no if if we're getting away from batteries we don't have to go from fossil fuels to mining all this other stuff which is has its own consequences we really can't just focus on stuff that's more readily available
1: so the kind of the mineral mineral supply chain of hydrogen, br- broadly speaking, is significantly better, but not perfect. Uh, it is more democratized and it is more diverse in terms of what you need to get what you want to get done. So hydrogen itself is produced, if we're going with the green hydrogen story here, um, it is produced with uh, electrolyzers, which are basically metal plates that are coated with a spray that contain a small amount of precious metals. And those precious metals eventually will go away, and there'll be non-precious metal substitutes. But they pale in comparison to the supply chain risk and procurement, you know, dynamics of lithium. Right? There is some minerals in it, but it's much smaller. Um, the, the risks of, of hydrogen are largely dependent on where you're getting the solar panels from or the wind turbines from. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're still dependent on China in, in kind of a baseline scenario. Um, in terms of hydrogen storage itself, it's just, you know, as a gas or as a liquid, it's in metal containers, no issues there, um, from a supply chain perspective, and then uh, the pipelines to deliver it to EV gas stations or homes or industrial centers are just pipes, it's just metal. So it does have some energy you know, trade-offs. It does have a mineral requirement profile, but it is orders of magnitude better and less risky than lithium. I mean, it's not even close, right? If, if you're Quebec, you don't care about the price of solar panels in China. Because you're producing your hydrogen via uh, hydroelectric,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, you know, if you're Iceland, you're using geothermal. So even if we took out the whole hydrogen solar value chain, others would sprout up because hydrogen is a universal energy carrier. <laughs> but it's not perfect. It's there. It's not perfect, but it's. I mean, lithium is just such a nightmare. Such a nightmare from a mineral supply chain perspective
0: well it's it's a it's not as bad as cobalt i feel like cobalt is yeah yeah is really the worst of it that's some heart of darkness shit right there um yeah Yeah. lithium at least you've got you know australia relatively reliable canada has some reserves the lithium triangle in south america that that's more accessible than you know going into the heart of africa where you know children are mining cobalt out of the (laughs) out of the land and being
1: yeah the, the argument's going to be we'll have cobalt substitutes, et cetera. Um, it, it's just uh, a, a battery you know saves the day scenario, I think, is just naive in terms of it, it narrows humanity's choices of mineral supply chain realities. It doesn't expand it. Hydrogen projects are literally appearing across the planet right and uh unless you've got the lithium or the cobalt or whatever it is you're 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 not playing in that game yeah
0: all right, well, let's, let's sort of open up the closing chapter here with talk to me about ammonia, because I know ammonia is something else that, that you're interested yeah. in, and I bet most listeners know nothing about it besides anything yeah. to do with the cleaning products in their house. So <laughs> start with a high-level <laughs> overview of, of ammonia.
1: Yeah. So an, ammonia is, chemically, it's NH3. So it is a nitrogen molecule with three hydrogen. Uh, Compare that to methane, which is uh, carbon and then four hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So by definition, ammonia is carbon free. It's a nitrogen molecule. It is a large industry unto itself today, largely because of uh, ammonia used in um, fertilizer and some chemical processes. Uh, And ammonia is also a natural refrigerant. So it is a less kind of terrible coolant used in the refrigerant industry. Um, So it's a large industry. um, And uh, the the, the breakthrough idea that is being pushed in the hydrogen world is we know how to transport ammonia. Uh, It's not something we want going across necessarily land transportation routes, but on the open seas, it's as safe and as dangerous as liquefied natural gas so the model of the future is i am a ocean-facing country with clean green hydrogen that needs to get to a market i go maybe a mile or two offshore i convert that hydrogen into ammonia i put it onto a ship that looks largely like an lng ship i send that ship to another nation a mile or two offshore Far from harm's way, if it blows up or it leaks and there's an ammonia leak, I convert that ammonia into hydrogen and pipeline it into that market. So, for folks that followed it, you know, the idea of liquefied natural gas when it first came out was terrifying. Mm-hmm. All the like, what if this thing comes off the coast and it gets blown up and boom, um, you don't want ammonia to leak? Yeah. You- <laughs> You don't you don't want, the, you know, but it's one of these things where the industry does it with LNG, um, and ammonia can be safe. So it's, it's ammonia is a ocean shipping based energy carrier for hydrogen. And it is also potentially the fuel for the marine shipping industry. So the ships could be powered by ammonia and, and that's it,
0: all, it. Well, it also has, so talk yeah. to me a little, cause I, I, uh, Before I had you on, I was talking to a buddy of mine in the fertilizer industry as well. Oh, yeah. um, And picked his brain about it. And he kind of dismissed me. He was like, oh, come on. Like, that's not scalable. Like, you're talking 10, 15 years down the road, which maybe, I mean, you and I like to think 10, 15 years down the road. But um, with fertilizer prices surging, it does seem to me that that's actually one of the areas where um, this could actually also make a big difference as well.
1: Absolutely. So, well, a couple things are happening. So, fertilizer prices are going up. Uh, natural gas prices are going up, which mm-hmm. makes green hydrogen more competitive just from a market standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and large companies like Shell and BP and and engineering firms and shipping companies, they're looking for the next big thing. Um, so you get a team of people that understands uh, ammonia, and you build a ship, and you build a facility. And uh, 10 to 15 years seems about right. I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, there's no delusion that this stuff is going to be, you know, a globally traded commodity anytime soon. But like I said, we have to get, we have to get beyond 2050 Mm -hmm. with our solutions. So I think ammonia will be a play. Um, There's also compressed, there's also liquid uh, cryogenic hydrogen for long-term store or long distance storage. And there is liquid organic, these LOHCs, which could come into play, um, but uh, we need shipping solutions, long-distance commodity training solutions for hydrogen. And I would push most of my poker chips onto ammonia at this point.
0: Well, uh, but the uh, yeah. the other issue, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm still I'm still getting up to speed on this, but it, yeah. it feels like the other issue with ammonia. Also, though, is that the, the process that most of it is being, you know, the, the process that is used to generate most of it right now for industrial processes is not particularly um, good from a carbon emission standpoint, that there is new technology that wants to make this renewable and green, but right now it's not in a really good place to, to scale. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, so, so, and I should have clarified this, the ammonia produced today comes from natural gas. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about is green ammonia. So we're talking about the, you know, the nitrogen largely comes from ambient air capture. Lots of nitrogen there, and then the hydrogen is from electrolyzers. Like where are most electrolyzers now sold? They're sold for ammonia production. Mm-hmm. So it is uh, green ammonia that you're you're really talking about here. You're you're not talking about. Uh, 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 natural gas-derived ammonia being shipped. That, that's, a poly, that's a PR nightmare. You're, you're, you're talking about green ammonia.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. That, yeah. that makes more yeah. sense to me.
1: The, 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 the larger, uh, for, for, for you know, the listeners, the larger sector to be researching is what's called power to X or power to gas. So it's this idea of taking power, electricity into a molecule, That molecule is almost always hydrogen as your first step through an electrolyzer, but then it can go into a synthetic hydrocarbon. It can go into a synthetic ammonia, a synthetic, you know, multi-chain, you know, natural gas substitute. So power to X is, is the engineering sector to focus on. That's the highest level.
0: All right. Well, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. And this is a, a two-parter. Um, uh, so if hydrogen doesn't explode the way that you think it is, or if something is going to derail it, what is that going to look like? And then sort of part two of that question is, how do current international political dynamics affect this, especially if we're going towards more protectionism Less globalization mm-hmm. does that affect how hydrogen is going to evolve, either in a positive or a negative way, or do you think that a lot of these processes are simply going to unfold? Maybe they'll unfold at different rates in different regions, but that we're talking about a real global phenomenon here that um, international political competition is is not going to mess with the fundamental story.
1: Yeah, so I, I we're I think absolutely at the stage of inevitability with hydrogen. I mean, it's just uh, we're we're, uh, we're about. T- Two years in, from the very beginning of this conversation, where it was kind of like, you know, the people in Germany were like, is it okay that we say hydrogen? Or is, <laughs> is all the environmental activists going to try to cut our throats and say that we're with big oil? Like, they tiptoed out two years ago. Three. Three, maybe three years. Now it's just like, <laughs> we're going to double our targets for hydrogen. <laughs> we're going to triple our target. So, it's inevitable. But let's just entertain what could go wrong. Um it could it could suffer like nuclear where we started this conversation from a uh an a skeptical activist, non-scientifically informed coordinated effort to uh to mischaracterize hydrogen and it could suffer from that PR campaign. Um from a technology standpoint, the, well, the policies for green hydrogen could run up against, uh, you know, China could say, we're not going to produce solar panels anymore. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and there there could be some sort of derailment of the renewable production that's feeding green hydrogen that keeps the green hydrogen targets from being reached. So you, you would have to be on the input side of the hydrogen story, less on the output. Um, I don't think any of these things are going to happen. I think right now the largest engineering firms of the world, Siemens, Mitsubishi, uh, ABB, uh, I mentioned Fortescue. Fortescue um, just hired the CEO from Mitsubishi Power, who was the largest fuel cell hydrogen proponent. To lead Fortescue's North American operations, hmm. so there's a new the CEO for FFI is the former CEO of Mitsubishi, and who was the number one hydrogen proponent in America, Mitsubishi. Hmm. We, it's inevitable. It's not the oil companies; it's the engineering companies that make this happen, right? Hmm. Uh, and then the dominoes will fall. And I, again, on my thesis is within 20 years, all the major hydrocarbon sector companies will be fully hydrogen or clean molecule fuel focused they'll still have oil coming out of the ground but it'll be sequestered carbon and converted
0: and uh will nations be paying for all of this in uh in ada or, or will <laughs> they still be paying for it in the dollar
1: <laughs> Cardano will be the largest cryptocurrency platform by 2030.
0: (laughs) I I had to get that in there at the end. Uh, Gary, that was a lot of food for thought. I I hope the listeners enjoyed it. You've given me more research to do as well. So thanks so much for for taking the time and uh, we'll talk to you soon, man. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or in any episode, you can email us at info at I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, You can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perch Perspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.